Well, good morning. Welcome to North Wake 2012. Uh, last week, if you think it's crowded in here today, you should have come last week. We had one service, no child care. So everybody was in this room all together. We rung in the new year. Inevitably, the new year brings resolutions. Uh, usually, they involve uh, weight loss and Bible reading. And so we are better equipped here to help you with the second of those resolutions. So if you'll go to our website, uh, Jeff has put together a remarkable selections of Bible reading plans that you can use this year in your personal devotional life. I mean, they come from every possible angle, every scenario, and uh, we really want to be supportive of this being a year where we're digging into the Word as God's people growing stronger in that glad practice that we have. So if you go to our website, um, you can find some excellent plans, and we'll try to send that out to you later this week as a link as well. But we want to encourage that. Every year, our elders set an overarching priority for our church, an area that we would like everyone who calls North Wake home to see spiritual growth in. And... Uh, this year, as a result of that time of prayer, we've come up with a uh, kind of a bumper sticker to express it. This year, we want everyone to grow in loving obedience to a loving God, that we would be better at gladly obeying God as a result of the study and the uh, intention of our hearts this year. Um, that's a catchy slogan that I borrowed from a forthcoming commentary by Ajith Fernando. It's actually named Loving Obedience to a Loving God. But this year, we want to grow in obeying God as an expression of our love for Him and as a response to His great love for us. And I know for some of you, you may be thinking, uh, isn't obedience a little rudimentary for a church as mature as ours? Shouldn't we be working on loftier things, the deeper things of God? Um, and, I, and that's a really good question. Um, let, me tell, let me answer it with a story that Leonard Sweet tells. It's a true story about the Prince of Granada. He was an heir to the Spanish crown, and he was sentenced to life in solitary confinement in Madrid's ancient prison. It was a dreadful, dirty, dreary place gave it the nickname, the place of the skull. Everyone knew that once you were in, you would never come out alive. The prince was given one book to read the entire time he was there, and that book was the Bible. With only one book to read, he read it hundreds and hundreds of times. The book became his constant companion. After 33 years of imprisonment, he died. And when they came to clean out his cell, they found some notes he had written using nails to mark the soft stone of the prison walls. The notations were of this sort. Psalm 118, verse 8, is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. Leonard Sweet points out to us that this guy spent 33 years of his life studying what many have described as the greatest book of all time, and yet all he got from it was trivia. For all we know, he never made any religious or spiritual commitment to Christ. He simply became an expert at Bible trivia. It's really tempting for us 
when you live in a Bible-rich culture like ours to confuse hearing with doing. You hear a good sermon, take notes on a good sermon, you're moved by a good sermon, and you think you've done everything you needed to do in response to the word that's presented in that sermon. James tells us that if that's how we think about hearing the word, we're, we're horribly deceived. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know, Jesus was absolutely clear that the most important thing in life is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's equally clear that that love is best displayed not in song or in creed or in proclamation or declaration of it, but in humble obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is how we love God. And that's why we're focusing on growing in our obedience this year. In one sense, it's the most important thing in the world. Now, when Jesus answered that question in Mark 12, what's the most important commandment? He quotes the Old Testament. He says, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Without looking, do you know where in the Old Testament Jesus is quoting what book? Anybody? What? Deuteronomy. Outstanding. The book of Deuteronomy. Um, Jesus is quoting uh, from, in part from Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So when Jesus is queried about what matters most in life, he looked to the book of Deuteronomy for the answer. Deuteronomy has a lot to say to us about what it means to obey our God and our great need for that. Some, some people have estimated that in the book of Deuteronomy, if you look at ideas like do and keep and observe and obey, that cluster of ideas around the Lord's commands, that, that idea occurs uh, about 200 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Beautiful, beautiful expression of it is in chapter 13. This is from the New International Version. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. That is right at the heart of the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll be studying it together uh, this year with the hopes of growing in our love for God and our loving obedience to Him. I'm, I'm curious... Before we get started, how many of you have ever sat under a start-to-finish series um, like this on the book of Deuteronomy before? Okay. So, for most of you, this is going to be the best series you've ever heard on the book of Deuteronomy, at least top one or two uh, this year. So, it's, it's an outstanding opportunity this year to grow together in the Scriptures. Sadly, Deuteronomy is a pretty neglected uh, book of the Scripture, but... If you'll open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy, let's get started with, with prayer, shall we? Let's pray together.
God, we do pray that this would be a great year for us in your word in this book, Deuteronomy. Pray that it would be a year when we heed your commands to obey with glad hearts um, because we've grasped your love and mercy for us. Lord, even this morning as we just kind of dip our toe in the water, may our hearts be softened and tugged to obey you gladly. We commit this to you and ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. People who like to count things tell us that Deuteronomy is cited in the New Testament more than 50 times. The same people who like to count things tell us if you count allusions to Deuteronomy and not more direct quotes, it's about 200 times that Deuteronomy shows up in the New Testament. So as we go through Deuteronomy, even if you're most familiar with the New Testament, you're going to hear echoes, as we already have, of things uh, that sound very, very familiar to you. Um, Some have suggested that Deuteronomy was was Jesus' favorite Old Testament book to quote. One writer says Jesus often quoted from Deuteronomy. In fact, it's almost invariably from this book that Jesus quotes. It is is a book, uh, as we've already seen, where Jesus says the most important commandment on earth is contained in the pages of this book. You remember when Jesus was battling Satan in the desert, being tempted. And Satan would tempt Jesus, and Jesus would respond with a quote from the Old Testament. Every one of those quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. It's a book of great spiritual power. Deuteronomy is actually a series of sermons that Moses preached in a very short span of time. Three sermons, usually it's divided that way. Some think preached within a week. Um, so if you're, if you're traditional, think Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's kind of the context for um, Deuteronomy, how it, it played out. One commentator, his name is Raymond Brown, he says that Deuteronomy is a collection of well-constructed, brilliantly illustrated sermons based on the message given initially to God, um, by God to Moses soon after he left Egypt. In Moses, they have the authoritative message of a faithful preacher, the encouraging support of a compassionate pastor, and the inspiring example of a committed believer. All three elements of preaching, pastoral care, and spirituality are found in this important book. Scholars tell us that Deuteronomy is also structured not only around those three sermons, but it really parallels um, the international treaties that were made thousands of years uh, before Christ that would involve a treaty from a great king and a great nation with a lesser nation that was entering into that nation for care and protection. Again, Brown says that these agreements were frequently made between two kings when a stronger ruler agreed to provide military protection and economic resources to a threatened one in return for the promise of submissive loyalty. And they follow a predictable pattern. And Deuteronomy... Uh, in large part, follows that pattern. So what Deuteronomy, what that brings to mind is that this is a covenant document where a great king is entering into a covenant relationship with a lesser people. That's us. And it's a God is making a covenant with his people, uh, renewing a covenant with a new generation of people, really. 
Some scholars have suggested that this actually comes, these contract forms actually comes from Egyptian labor contracts. And you remember that God's people were enslaved under those kind of contracts in Egypt for all those years. So they have, they've been on the end of a bitter labor contract. Now they're getting a chance to enter into a gracious one with God. Um, so the structure highlights the covenant between God and his people and highlights his greatness and his graciousness towards his people and what's expected of them. The setting of the book is real important for us as we think about understanding it as well. Uh, Two things are important to keep in mind even this morning as we look just a little bit in the first chapter. First of all, the people are on the verge of entering the promised land. After 400 years of slavery and 40 years of wandering in the desert, they're on the edge. They're about to enter the promised land. Moses is getting them ready for that with these sermons. But the second thing to keep in mind is Moses is about to die. He is not going to be permitted to enter the promised land with his people. And so there's a significant leadership transition that's about to happen with God's people. And that plays out in this first uh, chapter as well. So look with me at chapter 1. The first eight verses read like this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tafel, Laban and Hezeroth and Dizahab. All that means is they were on the edge of the promised land. Okay? They were right there. Um, it's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, now it's 11 day journey, it was taking them 40 years. So in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edre. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God has said to us in Horeb. Horeb is another way to describe Mount Sinai, where the covenant was made, the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. You have stayed long enough at this mountain, God said. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and in the, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's the promised land. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So we find Israel, God's people, right on the edge of stepping into the promise of God that had been denied the generation before them. It is one of the most exciting times in the history of God's people. I mean... Something unbelievable was about to happen. Um, I, I think of it this way. I, uh, I've told you before, I'm memory challenged. I don't have a really good memory. Okay, I have, I have a horrible memory. But it, and even in my childhood, I don't remember a lot. I remember little pockets of things. And one of the things I remember was uh, on July 20th, 1969, I was 11 years old. We were on vacation uh, in Colorado. We lived in Illinois, so my dad would put a, hook a trailer behind the car. We would travel to Colorado because they had stuff to see. Okay, we had cornfields. They had mountains. So we would, we would travel there regularly for our annual vacation. 
We're there in one of those campgrounds, mountain campgrounds in the Rockies of Colorado. And I remember in the evening, everybody in our little part of the campground was gathered around a TV set. One of those TV sets was about the size of an iPad. And it was black and white. And it had, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, it had an antenna called rabbit ears on it. And to pick up the signal, they had put aluminum foil on it which in theory enhanced the signal. And we were all watching something amazing happen. A man, for the first time in history, was setting foot on the moon. It was unbelievable. We had been in this great uh, kind of military space race with the Soviets, and we had won. And we watched, on that little TV, we actually watched a man step on the moon. It, it really did happen, in case you're wondering. But there was a sense, the whole nation, if you were, if you're old enough to be alive then, you probably, somebody stopped me after services, I remember exactly where I was when that happened. Um, Because the whole nation was on the edge of their seat with expectation. This was the new frontier. That's, That's kind of the level of expectation I cannot help but think was going on amongst the people of Israel. At long last... They were on the edge of living in what God had promised them. After 400 years of slavery and then 40 years wandering in the desert, um, they were arriving in the promised land. Uh, When it talks about Mount Sinai, you can see it located down here. They traveled up into Canaan, Canaan land, the promise, the land of promise. It was supposed to be an 11-day journey, but because of the disobedience of their parents, it took them 40 years till that generation completely died out. They were not allowed to enter the land. And now a new generation is being readied for this great promise. So to get the people ready, what Moses does, okay, it's a new generation. Their parents had made the covenant at Sinai, but now they're getting ready to go in the promised land with a whole new generation. No one older than 20 years old was allowed in. So this new generation is being made ready to walk in the promises of God in this new thing. And and to do that, he looks back to Sinai and he reminds them of the covenant that they made with God. Um, The rest of Deuteronomy really is God using these three great sermons of Moses to ready the people to walk into what God had for them, to live as his people in the land he had promised. Now, again, after 400 years of slavery and 40 years of aimless wandering in the desert, you can imagine how excited they were to be on this plateau, ready to step into this land. And so what Moses does is remind them of the words he had spoken to their fathers, and now they are renewing to live according to God's law as they enter the land. Um, The next few verses in our passage, he addresses a a critical issue that's going to face them as they enter the land, that about leadership. He says, at that time, back in the mountain, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as as the stars of heaven, just as God had promised they would be. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. 
How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? So this is Moses' plan. that The nation has outgrown his leadership. It says, choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me. The thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. They bought in to this new leadership structure back at the mountain. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who's with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that's too hard for you, Moses said, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. So Moses is reviewing the leadership structure for them that was to govern them in the land. Their parents had agreed to it. They had agreed to it when they were young. Now he's renewing that with them. And it's real important that they buy into this because Moses is not going into the land with them. He is going to die prior to entering, and he knows that. So he is reviewing this, um, that which they had signed on to. Back in verse 14, you remember their response. The thing you have spoken is good for us to do. They bought into this plan. So he is renewing that agreement here. That agreement was to be led by men of wisdom and experience. And this is the consistent pattern of God's people throughout the Bible. Old Testament and new. Men of experience and wisdom and character uh, get to lead God's people. That is the pattern then, and it's the pattern today. Some of you have wondered, might be wondering, how do I become an elder at North Wake? Well, you get elder and you get wise. That's how you become an elder at North Wake. You serve the church faithfully for a long time. That's really how you become qualified to serve the church as an elder. Um, Develop the character of an elder as it's laid out in the New Testament. Um, So Moses is reviewing this structure with them because he's not going to go in. Leadership is going to be transferred and shared amongst all, all these other leaders and particularly by Joshua as we'll see. These are the leaders that they will follow. But he is giving this to the leaders. And so it's a reminder of certain things to those leaders themselves, of the kind of leader they have to be. They cannot be impartial, and they cannot play favorites. They must judge rightly, he says. And this new generation of people must must deal differently with these leaders than the previous generation did. These, these just leaders. The previous generation was notorious for their grumbling about their leaders. Here's an example from Exodus 17. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why would you bring us up, up out of Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're they're almost ready to stone me. 
So Moses knew that this people needed to be in submission, glad, willing submission to this new group of leaders. And so he calls them. And he knew that these leaders needed to be men worthy of that submission. So he tells them in these verses, you shall not be partial. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. You know, it's a temptation uh, in the church even today to be partial to certain people. James in the New Testament echoes this theme. Favoritism cannot be in the church. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, it's a temptation to play favorites. And so Moses is warning them, don't just kowtow to the powerful. James is warning us, don't just kowtow to the rich. Ezekiel has a similar warning against selfish shepherds. Let me read it to you at length. It's, it's worth hearing for those of us who are in leadership. Word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. Lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. To be intimidated, to play favorites, is just another way of being a self-serving shepherd. We must not be intimidated. We must not play favorites. Moses warns us. Ezekiel warns us. James warns us. We must judge rightly, it says in verse 17. The judgment is the Lord's. Ultimately, leaders must be accountable to God and please Him above all others. Let me see if I can illustrate how this should work. I come to church on Sunday. I'm rocking a brand new sweater vest. Okay. <laughs> and as I'm rocking my brand new sweater vest, one of the ladies in the congregation goes, hey, rocking new sweater vest. And I say, thanks. 
I go home feeling pretty good about my sweater vest. I see my wife who hasn't seen me because I get up pretty early, leave pretty early on Sunday. She sees me and she says, where did you get that vest? That is atrocious. It doesn't matter what that lady said at church. It doesn't matter if every lady at church stood up and said, hey, rock and sweater vest. Doesn't matter. The Lord has spoken. I am accountable to one. I serve one master, right? Guys, there is remarkable theological correspondence between what your wife thinks and what God thinks. Trust me on this, okay? At least in areas of fashion, take it as from God, okay? Uh, But that level of uh, singular influence in the life of a leader must come from his God. He cannot be partial to any other person. He cannot play favorites. And Moses is reminding not only the people what kind of relationship they need to have with their leaders, but he's reminding the leaders what kind of leaders they must be as he reviews all of this information about leadership transition here in this portion. So Moses, in Deuteronomy, is procuring the allegiance of this new generation that's about to enter the land by reminding them of God's words to them, his promises to them, his commandments to them that the previous generation had signed on back at Mount Sinai. Now, Deuteronomy is going to be a challenge for us this year in a lot of ways, um, simply because we're not them, on the one hand. We, uh, we're not Israelites living in the, in the desert 3,500 years ago. There's a big old gap between us and them. And that is going to restrict the application we can draw from this book. Um, something simply will not transfer to us. But there are many things that we have in common. Um, for instance, God is the same. The God we see in the pages of Deuteronomy 3,500 years ago, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. We share and worship the same God. We, like them, are God's people in covenant relationship to him. And it's there that we learn about radical obedience to God. We, like them, have a great task before us as we learn to live as God's people in the land that he's given us and take the gospel to all lands. We, like them, have been given the words and commands of God to obey. That's how Moses ends this section we're looking at this morning. He says, I commanded you at that time, back on the mountain, all the things that you should do, that you should obey. We, in studying Deuteronomy, are going to learn how to obey God, just as God's people did in its first hearing. So, I want you to to leave with this question on your mind this morning. Are you ready to obey God? Wholeheartedly. Gladly. Are you ready to obey God? Because um, what, what this time in Deuteronomy, on the edge of that promised land, was for God's people was a time of consecration. It was a time of readying their hearts to serve and obey God in the land. So really what we're going to be doing this year, too, is readying ourselves as a people to happily obey God 
It's a time of consecration, a time of getting ready, getting our hearts ready. And that is, that's a big job with hearts like ours. Um, I love the story of, that Doug Mendenhall shares, a kind of parable about how important getting ready to deal with God is. You've heard it before, but it's priceless. I'll share it with you again. He says, uh, Jesus called the other day to say he was passing through and wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. I said, sure, I'd love to see you when we hit town. I mean, it's Jesus, you know. And it's not every day you get the chance to visit with him. It's not like it's your in-laws and you have to stop and decide whether the advantages outweigh your having to move to sleep to, to the sleeper sofa for a couple days. He said, that's when Jesus told me he was actually at a convenience store out by the interstate. I must have gotten that Bambi in the headlights look because my wife hissed, what is it? What's wrong? Who is that? So I covered the receiver and told her Jesus was going to arrive in eight minutes. And she ran out of the room and started giving guidance to the kids in that effective way that marine drill instructors give guidance to recruits. My mind was already racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, no, seven minutes, so Jesus wouldn't think that we were reprobate loser slobs. I turned off the TV in the den, which was blaring some weird, scary movie I'd been half-watching, but I could still hear screams from our bedroom, so I turned off the reality show it was turned to. Plus, I turned off the kids' set out on the sun porch because I didn't want to have to explain John and Kate plus eight to Jesus uh, six minutes from now. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Today on top for a good first impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the front window, but the yard actually looked great thanks to my long hard work, so I let it go. I mean, what could I improve in four minutes anyway? I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to grab it. Mostly it was Netflix envelopes and a bunch of catalogs tied into recent purchases, so I stuffed it back in a box. Jesus didn't need to get the wrong idea three minutes from now about how much online shopping we do. I ran back in and picked up a bunch of shoes left by the door, tried to stuff them in the front closet, but it was overflowing with heavy coats and work coats and snow coats and pretty coats and rain coats and extra coats. We live in the South. Why did we buy so many coats? I squeezed the shoes in with two minutes to go. I plumped up sofa pillows. My wife tossed dishes into the sink. I scolded the kids. She shooed the dog. And with one minute left, I realized something important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. This year, we have a chance to get ready to encounter God and to obey Him. In these three messages in Deuteronomy, God is readying His people to enter the promised land. He is, he is consecrating them to live for God in that land. And so today, um, we want to close our time with, with a kind of a time of consecration, the, the first step of, of opening up our hearts and saying, yes to God, I am ready to obey you. And for some of us, that means we have to acknowledge known disobedience to God. As soon as I ask the question, are you willing to obey God? Some of you thought of an area where you are not, where there is radical disobedience going on in your life to God. You know it, and yet you've still clung to it. And part of your consecration today is simply acknowledging, God, I, I have disobeyed you, and I'm sorry. Have mercy on me. For others of us, it means asking for a willing heart when I said, are you willing to obey God, there was a catch in your spirit. 
because you're afraid of what God might ask you to do if you really said, unreservedly said yes. And that's simply because you don't know him well enough yet. You don't love him enough yet to make that yes. Perhaps you just need strength and faith to obey. Your your heart is willing, but your flesh is weak, so to speak. Um, But during these next two songs that we sing together as a congregation, I want you to use it as a time to consecrate your heart. You may want to just drop out of this singing, sit right where you are, and pour out your heart to God and ask him to ready it, to say yes to him as he leads you this year in, in what he wants you to obey him in. Maybe you want to make your way down front. Maybe bring a friend or two and spend some time at the steps kneeling as an act of consecration of your heart to God. Um, But let's use these two songs. The first is about God's great covenant of love for us in Christ, what he's done for us. And the second is our submitting our hearts gladly to him. Let's stand and worship our king as the worship team comes and leads us in that.